of all that really heavy lifting you do is crushing down your scrawny legs. You guys are coming into episode 12, and we're having some fun over here. The height of the table is a little funky. Reminds me of this time we took my grandmother, God rest her soul, to a place in Branson, Missouri, where the table slowly rose as you ate. And she was old and her mind was playing tricks on her. And by the end, I'm little, she's old. And we're both like kind of under the table. And she looked at me and she was so confused. And I was confused. I'm and everybody confused. else knew what was happening. That's why, why we're talking right about this. Right on. So, hey. How did you turn this into one of your horrible stories? This is an awesome day for me because we have Tyler Cole joining us in the studio today. And Tyler is a graduate of the University of Tennessee. Go Big Orange. Which is really awesome because one, I'm a, I'm a newcomer to the party, I'm a bandwagon fan, and two, we know that Alabama's Jeff's team, so that's got to hurt bad. So Tyler, feel free to throw in as many digs as you can on this episode, but we're super excited for you to be here. Uh, for the audience, Tyler is the host of the Net Zero Carbon podcast, so he's doing his own thing. He's got a different audience than we do, uh, and we thought this would be an awesome opportunity to collaborate and help introduce each other. and. Um, continue forward with the messaging around CO2, of course, on our side, the supply CO2. Uh, Tyler's really focused on uh, freight and energy. He's got over 15 years of experience. And so um, we're really excited to merge audiences today and just learn a little bit more about what Tyler's doing and the awareness he's spreading. Tyler, thank you so much for coming on. Guys, happy to be here. I've really enjoyed the show. Jeff, Thanks to the team for a tough win. It's been 15, 15 long years, and we don't even have to get into it after this because I know I don't know how long it'll last. As a Tennessee fan, you just take them as they come. As of taping of this show, we're about, what, six weeks out from the SEC championship. So, I mean, if you can beat Georgia, then you'll just see us again. And we might learn how to play defense by then. <laughs> or at least not get penalized. <laughs> or, or get a new kicker for the – 18 times <laughs> because kicking is just something clearly we don't do so well, well, i'm excited to be on i've enjoyed going down the rabbit hole of co2 merchant markets and co2 use I and mean, everybody is focused on carbon and this new carbon economy that we're creating and i think you guys bring a unique perspective to that kind of underside of the market that most people don't even know exists so i'm glad you guys are out there educating people yeah well, we appreciate it well i mean and we like what you guys are doing over there freight waves uh you know so uh, yeah, let's introduce yourself if you would, but you know, from the perspective for us, it's uh, all about the renewable fuels and alternative uses for CO2. That's really, really interesting to us because, you know, as we've been talking about more and more in the, the recent uh, episodes is, you know, we can talk about sequestration, 45Q and all that all day long, but yeah, that's not sustainable. And as long as we're just paying people to put it into the ground and not coming up with new sources or new, new utilization of it then we're really not solving the problem. We're just kicking the can down the road and paying for it sooner or later. So yeah, what you guys are doing and what you're promoting over there in the, in the transportation sector is really interesting to us. Absolutely. Happy to dive into that. And it's a rapidly evolving space. Maybe a bit about me real quick. So I host Net Zero Carbon, show at FreightWaves. FreightWaves is a, uh, I would say a trusted source of data and analytics and pricing and supply and demand transparency for freight markets globally. So we've got a heavy presence, North America, heavy presence, international containers. We also have a separate vertical that's all about education and entertainment and freight. So we have our own streaming television. We've got live and virtual events and different vertical podcasts. Mine focuses on sustainability. And my, my bent is to try and decarbonize value chains. And I focus on freight fuels and energy. And it's just a great way to use my experience and interest to try and make an impact. So I firmly believe that we're seeing a renaissance going on in mobility. 
and low carbon mobility. And that's going to happen differently in different geographies. But if we stay focused here on the U.S. for for a while, you mentioned IRA and some of those tax incentives that we've got coming down the pipe. I think we're in your inning one of a, a nine inning, 18 year run where we're going to see rapid advancements in not only low carbon liquid fuels, but also electrification across all different modes. Yeah, so that's great. So educate us real quick. What is a what is a both a renewable fuel, but more specifically a biofuel, and where are we seeing that? Like, what is biodiesel? I mean, we we think you know diesel trucks are bad and black smoke, and but now there's a biodiesel and there's there's aviation fuel that we're talking about. So give us a background, educate us a little bit on that. Yeah, if you're thinking about how do we get carbon and emissions out of freight and logistics, we've been at this for a while. Uh, I mean, think about. I know y'all probably a similar age to me. So think about the ozone problem we were having in the 80s and 90s, right? And how everybody started attacking that. You think about smog in Southern California and China. All of these are come, coming out of big diesel engines running around these you know, high dense communities. And everybody started attacking that. So we've got on trucks today, probably some of the cleanest trucks we've had in 30, 40 years, right? Like all these big diesel rigs have emissions exhaust control. They have these different onboard computer technologies that are trying to recirculate some of these emissions and make everything coming out the tailpipe clean, but we still have a big problem. So how do we start tackling it? We've got electrification. Everybody knows it's coming. Everybody's seen the commercials, but we also know it's not here yet for heavy duty. I might go buy a Tesla, but I'm not going to get a Tesla semi because Pepsi's getting the first one next week and who knows how it's going to run. And we're not at scale yet. So when you think about the different levers we have to pull to get carbon and emissions out of our freight, we've got biofuels that have been in existence for 20, 30 years, right? If you look back in America, ethanol and biodiesel are the biggest two. They're huge global markets now. They came out of really a desire for energy security and a desire not to export oil. And then the shale revolution came and now we've got all these different opportunities. So you have natural gas trucking, you've got RNG trucking, which is like a captured methane at a dairy farm that gets converted and scrubbed and put into a pipe. Uh, we've got ethanol, biodiesel and renewable diesel. Renewable diesel is similar to fossil diesel, almost chemically identical. So it can be blended up to 100 percent in a truck, which is really different than renewable or than biodiesel, which is made out of soybeans, palm oils. It's a different production pathway and it ends up being a little bit different. So it's got different chemical properties. So you can't blend it 100% in a truck without some major modifications. So bio here in the U.S. is probably 5 6% of our total blend nationally. Renewable diesel in a market like California, where they're really incentivizing these fuels through essentially government subsidies, renewable diesel and biodiesel combined are like 30% of the diesel pool in California. But most consumers aren't aware of that. What is the what is the percent breakdown globally? California's thirty percent. Do you know off the top of your head what's the uh, what nationally? What does that look like? Or not globally? I guess let's focus domestic. Renewable diesel as a percentage of the total diesel pool globally. Yeah, or domestically, if if you know either of those. Yeah, numbers. domestically, it's got to be one to two percent domestically for renewable diesel because there's no other market that's incentivizing it like California, and you still have runway to not saturate all of that supply. Yeah, why is it? What what needs to be incentivized for it? Like, you know, it seems like it's renewable. You're capturing it, especially on these methane. You, you know, you got other things going on in there that are kind of, you know, kind of sunk cost in all of this. Why does it need to be subsidized to be cost competitive? Oh man, that's the the million dollar question for most of these technologies, right? Um, one, we're really good at at drilling and refining cheap crude. We're really good at. It. And we're not really good at pricing in the environmental externalities of some of those fuels. 
So if you start going down the road of we need to drive carbon emissions down, you got to start comparing apples to apples. So what's the life cycle carbon in a typical gallon of diesel as compared to some of these other fuels like renewable diesel? And the average number is diesel is like 95 grams um, on an energy basis, whereas renewable diesel could be 20 to 30. And then RNG, because methane has a different global warming profile than carbon does. If you capture methane today, it's like a negative 200 to negative 400 if you're converting it into a transportation fuel like RNG. So you start saying, all right, these fuels are better. How do we incentivize them? Because we are coming up with new pathways for production. So we, we, we know there's dairy digesters that have been out there for years, but getting it done at scale, maybe they have to drill a pipe now to be able to access this market that's paying them to do so. So putting these incentives out in front of some of these production pathways is we've seen it move the needle in, in terms of uh, incentivizing new supply coming online. So when you talk about some of these dairies, right, and, and life cycle analysis, and I mean, is it is it one umbrella of hey, we know that when you produce, uh, you know, RNG off of a off of a dairy plant, this is your general carbon intensity score because all the processes are relatively the same from state to state, or are they doing a life cycle analysis at each individual location? Who's doing that? I mean, how, like, what does the accounting look like? How are we taking advantage of these credits? Uh, we've found, especially through the IRA, everybody kind of talks about it, but it seems that nobody has the clear cut answer. Can you dive into life cycle analysis for us some? Yeah, I would say if you take a step back and go macro, just the, the process of life cycle analysis, the practice of it is longstanding and it's been around globally for decades. It's well-researched, it's well-documented. It works across different product life cycles. So not just fuels and energy. If you're looking at trying to understand the full life cycle emissions of a consumer good product, right? There, there are clear steps you go through and there's some established literature. If anybody wants to go deep or get into the, maybe the show notes on here, I would check out GRI is an institute that, that publishes a lot of that. ISO has their own standards for how you calculate these. So a lot of it's known. Um, when you get into your question about specific molecules coming out of specific geographies, making specific fuels, they follow those same principles and call it the order of operations to calculate, um, but they're going to have different inputs. So I could take a, uh, let's use ethanol as an example. An ethanol plant in the Northern Midwest could have a very different life cycle pathway for a, than an ethanol plant on the Mississippi River. And it could be various reasons. It could be how sustainable they are upstream at getting their corn, right? What kind of fertilizer they're using. It could be how they get their product to market. Am I trucking it to a local market or am I railing it to a market on the West Coast? All of these things play a role in the full life cycle emissions. And so you have to take those into effect when you start trying to understand how one fuel compares to another. You got to get to an apples to apples comparison. Yeah, I, I like that. I was, I was going to say you, you ended up doing it. I was going to say you know, really, really dumb it down for 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 me. Uh, but when you talk about life cycle, okay, I just I like it simple. I like pictures are nice. If you got pictures, that's great too. Um, but uh, no, if you've got like by life cycle, basically what you're saying is it's not just the emissions that you're emitting while production it or what that particular fuel emits. It is what it take to get it, and what does it take to get it to where you're going? Like everything upstream, downstream, all the way through it. And it's like, um, I always love California. So, yeah, we don't have coal and nuclear plants, but they certainly have uh, for generating power. But, but they're in Oregon and we pay, but we, we, you know, it's okay that it's in Oregon. It's just not here. It's, you know, not in my backyard, you know, so. Um, yeah, getting, getting to the point where you're looking full value chain upstream and downstream allows less people to try and, you know, hide the sausage there, no, <laughs> as you're describing, right? 
It's an interesting concept, though, and it matters probably for y'all and your customers in a big way, too, because carbon is the the point in the, the value chain analysis where people are trying to ascribe the most value to, right? And we want to make it scarce, but we also have to make it expensive to try and get rid of it, which is a weird kind of dichotomy. But when you start thinking about carbon as not just a comparison between two different fuels or different products, you start thinking of it as an input resource that you can make stuff out of. That's where this whole conversation starts to get really interesting and where you guys are probably well-versed in the conversation because we have so many current uses for CO2. Um, Not many of our audience would understand where the CO2 in the merchant market comes from or goes to. Um, I think they'd be surprised to know all the places that we actually have real utility and need for a healthy CO2 market. Well, that's why I am. That's what we really look forward to talking to you on this is because I think that's the key right there is, you know, that merchant market that you talked about. I mean, that's kind of our audience. That's what we speak to is that supply of it. And there is a great fear that if we just start sequestering everything, then what? The more uses, the more applications, and and uh, the more you know utilization we have of it, the more we're going to have access to the CO two that we need, and hopefully in more diverse locations and not so centralized or uh, in in higher volumes, but uh, more regional and local. Which you know the the the, the closer the the CO two is to the use point, the less transportation, the less you know there its life cycle there goes way down. So. Rather than having these, you know, huge volumes produced off of a hydrogen plant or power generation, great. Capture it, sequester that where it's needed, reduce the emissions as much as possible. But all these other applications, can we identify, you know, regional low-cost capture points? And if we could be blending fuels with it or something like that, then then great. Yeah, we could do that in a multitude of locations. So really interesting. For sure. Super yeah, so important. Jump us over. I'm really interested about, like, well, I know one of the... You talked about like you're going to buy a Tesla, but not a truck. Well, same thing with batteries, same thing with hydrogen, all the other alternatives. You know, like uh, you know, marine was a big one. You know, back in you know five seven years ago, and they've gone to natural gas, uh, liquefied natural gas for a lot of marine fueling, um, and locomotives and rail still looking towards kind of going to either hydrogen now or or still natural gas. Aviation is a big one. Right. So they're a huge consumer of, of some of these fuels and they don't have the alternatives. So talk to us about SAF. So what is it and where are we at with it? Yeah, SAF, sustainable aviation fuel, is is really in everybody's eyes the only path forward for decarbonizing air for an airline in general. Um, even the you know the trade bodies and the UN organizations, everybody has an aspirational 2040, 2050 goal to get to net zero, and there's just no way to do it because your fuel burn is 80, 90% of your footprint when you're in that industry. So unless you change the fuel, you got no hope. So there are uh, high level SAF. There are seven different pathways to make it. You can make them from biofuels. You can make them from synthetic fuels. You can blend it today up to 50% with traditional jet. Um, But we're so nascent in this technology because some of it's just now becoming commercially viable, especially with a lot of the tax incentives like IRA and some of the things they've done in Europe are trying to incent production and supply of this because everybody's demanding it. Um, it's going to be a real revolution, I think, whether that's going to be, uh, you know, maybe we electrify light duty gas demand goes down and ethanol starts to convert itself over to SAF because there's additional technologies. You can refine ethanol further into jet fuel. That's one of the pathways or whether we're taking carbon and we're blending it with hydrogen and we're synthesizing that into a synthetic fuel that we can burn in jets. That's another big option. And what's unique about those industries is they're so new and they have so much interest and financing behind them that if we can just de-risk the pathways, 
it's going to have a big impact on how we're capturing and utilizing carbon. Because if carbon is now a feedstock for what we're trying to burn, that's just an additional demand driver for an already potentially reducing supply that you guys see. So how do we keep capturing more and more and more so that we can use it more and more in, in actual utility ways, not necessarily sequestration? So talking about dumbing it down for me now, if, if hydrogen is part of the answer for airline and for decarbonization, and we're using CO2 potentially in these fuels, we can now capture off the hydrogen process, use some of that CO2 for the fuels, and now hydrogen becomes more green at its core, and it kind of is well, a self-fulfilling yeah. prophecy I, of I, the decarbonization. I see it in two ways. That way, for sure. Uh, so when you're doing steam methane reforming, like, you know, that's, you get a tremendous amount of, of CO2. If you're doing electrolysis, uh, it's not really cost competitive today, but it's a much cleaner green way of producing hydrogen, which is what we want is green hydrogen. The problem is it's extremely expensive. But if, and so what we lack in this country and the world really is, is hydrogen, even though we have it's everywhere, right? But, uh, but we have no real access by finding that alternative, but, you know, a, finding another use for that hydrogen and then probably a little bit higher value, uh, uh, you know, of the, that biofuel or the sim fuel using the hydrogen with the CO2. Yeah, so even if you're producing hydrogen without the CO2 generation or emission, then you blend more CO2 into it, it encourages more production of hydrogen and it makes it cost feasible, I would think. That's that's kind of how I would see that one going. So the, the more I would hydrogen... agree with you. I would say most of these industries pretty early are policy dependent and want to be on a path to be policy resilient. So we've got great federal incentives. You just mentioned it from the IRA. Um, there's a hydrogen production tax credit in there, and it doesn't necessarily differentiate like gray, green, blue. Everybody talks about the colors of hydrogen. It really does get to a, a carbon intensity on a life cycle. And that's where I think we need to go away from calling it just green hydrogen or blue or purple, or however it's made. If we start thinking about everything on an apples to apples, what's the life cycle analysis of this fuel and how do we account for that appropriately? Then we can start to scale faster, in my opinion, than if we just look at one pathway or one option. Um, where it gets tricky with using hydrogen is it, it almost takes me back to like 2010. Like, I don't know if y'all remember like the beginning of shale. Um, I was a big like Pickens plan guy. I was like, Hey, natural gas trucks are going to eat the world. This is what we're going to do. And lo and behold, we didn't build America's natural gas refueling highway. We actually found a much better and higher and more economical use for that molecule, right? We started exporting it. We started liquefying it. It, it didn't go into trucking fleets. And that was for a couple of reasons. One, the policy support lever wasn't necessarily there to incentivize it. Two, we didn't have the appropriate makes and models of the equipment coming out where fleet operators said, hey, this is great. Give it to me, plug and play. And you didn't have the same focus on sustainability and climate change as we do today. Hydrogen might be different now. I know it's just as tricky, trickier actually to transport than natural gas, but we do have those policy levers. We do have the corporate and government demand for these fuels, and we do have um, an appetite for them and models like of trucks coming available that can use it in a meaningful way through a fuel cell. So I, I, I would love to have a crystal ball and start making some appropriate stock market bets on which technologies are going to win out. But it just, I get so like triggered thinking about how much time and energy I invested in natural gas trucking that hydrogen scares me. Yeah, we, we did that in 2013, 14, 15. And it was, yeah, I, I say all the time, I'm sometimes carbon capture sounds like that as well. But hydrogen, absolutely. Sometimes you just start to feel like this is kind of redoing all again. And yeah, so you kind of bring up the question when you just said that, though, 
um, it does take you know that that kind of support from you know from governments and legislation and permitting and all those other things. When you look at the IRA uh, and if you look at California and things like that, I mean, have we wholesale just bought into electric vehicles are the only way and the way? And so it almost seems like we support that technology over all other technologies. Is that I mean, where do you feel like that's going? I would agree with you that the the thumb is probably on the scale towards electrification in some of those markets. When you talk about banning internal combustion sales, you know, by 2035 or whatever the year is, and it's not just California, right? It's happening over in Europe and different different countries as well. Um, on one hand, I think that's tough. You don't like seeing heavy-handed policy. I would like to see the market choose. On the other hand, we've seen now the amount of investment that's coming off the back of that here in the U.S. as it relates to battery manufacturing, recycling, production, automotive, term, like it is an opportunity to totally revolutionize our manufacturing economy while pursuing what we believe is, is a really good pathway to zero tailpipe emissions. The problem is you can't just do that without doing everything else in tandem. So we have to like parallel continue decarbonizing the grid. Right, which means building more and more renewables and solar and hydro and hopefully nuclear. Um, but it's still, even if you're using today's grid, running electric, whether it's a truck or whether it's a car, it's still about 50% better than running it on diesel or gas, even if you're fueling in West Virginia or some other state. I mean, we've got enough renewables in the country now where it's it's green enough. But I, I try to encourage people not to get too bogged down in not only the policies, but also the trickeries of carbon accounting when it comes to it. Like if there's a solution that's going to help and it's economical and there's somebody wants to pay for it, we should march forward with it. So let me ask you this thing, closing thoughts, right? Where we are today, too much talk, not enough action. Are you pleased with the action you've seen in the last one, two years? Are we on the right path or do we, do we really need to start, you know, diving deeper than just a discussion, just some policy change? I think we're directionally going the right direction, just not fast enough, if that makes sense. But I also believe that the people who say we should be doing everything faster, let's you know cut our own throats to try and save our leg, need to understand the realities of getting big infrastructure projects done, which as a country, we have not done at this scale in 50 years, right? I mean, think the last big public works infrastructure projects were New Deal, like 40s, interstate highways. Like we have not done anything this big in a long time. So while the gears are grinding, we just we need to get the rust off and get some other you know roadblocks out of the way. Call it permitting reform, whatever it needs to be. I think we have the technologies and we've got the capital and we've got the will, um, at least as a people. I hope we have the will combined as corporates and government kind of working together to accelerate solutions. Yeah. Well, that's a, obviously it's a continuing conversation. So net zero carbon. Where can we find you? When yeah, Fridays at 1 p.m. on FreightWaves TV. Uh, we're streaming on all you know the standard streaming services as well for podcasts. But uh, we've got a big event coming up in Chattanooga first few days of November, F3, the Future of Freight Festival. It's unlike any conference anyone's ever been to. It's not just panels and interviews. It's uh, you know half-day sessions and then live events, live music, concerts spread out all over the city. Um, it, should be, it should be really fun. It's one of our first big live events in a couple of years. I have to add real fast when you opened with, you know, the education and entertainment of freight 
we've been entertained by freight in the last year. I've I've been enter- it's it's kept me on my toes. So I don't know. Like entertaining, but uh, yeah, not not the entertainment I would like to see. So nice to pivot to what y'all working on a, a nice change of pace from the entertainment we've been used to with freight because it goes along with Halloween theme. It's, uh, it's been scary, scary, yeah, scary, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> I really appreciate all your time, and I look forward to continuing talking with you in the future. Absolutely, thank you, Tyler. We'll catch up soon. Thank you. Oh, 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 oh,